1: She's an associate editor at the Financial Times. She's a CNN's global economic analyst. And we're going to talk about um, her work with economics and her book, a homecoming book, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Globalist World. So, Rhonda, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you me, yeah, Richard.
1: If you would, tell me a bit about your background. It looks like you have a very, very extensive background in journalism and economics for a long time. And then I want to ask you about, uh, you know, what's happening currently. But background first, if you would.
2: Sure. So I've been a journalist for 32 years. I had a brief foray during that period into venture capital, but quickly went back to journalism. I realized it's a lot easier to write about uh, business than to actually start them. <laughs> I've worked in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia. I've traveled a lot. I have run economics and business for Newsweek and Time magazine before I became a columnist at the Financial Times. I'm the author of three books, most recently Homecoming. And I am also CNN's global economic Center. So, you know, I my, my job, which I feel very lucky to have, is running around, talking to some people, and trying to come up with some perceptions about where the economy and business are headed.
1: Well, before we get into your book, what's it like being a journalist, you know, uh, right now and, you know, the end of 2022? Like, how has journalism hmm. changed for you the past few years? Is it harder, easier, different? What does it look like?
2: Well, you know, I got into business in 1992, and I would say that that was pretty close to the peak, print journalism. After that, you know, by 95, you had the commercial internet really beginning to take off, and that created a hollowing out in, in print journalism. And, you know, so I've, in some ways, always worked in a structurally declining industry. Um, that said, I've been lucky to be able to work with some great publications, and the last few years, in fact, have actually been very good um, for journalism, uh, print journalism, high-end print journalism, I would say, because, you know, with all the misinformation, disinformation out there, I think that the subscription model, which is what the FP, um certainly follows, and, and others like the New York Times, um, Wall Street Journal, I think that that has, has really taken off because people are looking for trusted sources of news. I would say, you know, working in this business is never going to be like, you know, being in something that's really booming, I guess, maybe healthcare or certain areas of tech, but but you can definitely make a good living. And I think that the experience that I have, particularly in economics and business, which requires more, I would say, sector expertise than, say, covering the arts or culture, perhaps does. um, It's an advantage.
1: So oh, what's, what's, what drove your new book? What's it about? And let's focus on that for a little bit.
2: Sure. So the new book, Homecoming, is about the move from unfettered globalization to uh, what I believe will be a new world of regionalization, localization, more of a focus on kind of re wealth in place. And when I talk about that, what I'm referring to is in the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen a process of globalization that's been based on... Neoliberal economics and that, that, that philosophy, that neoliberal philosophy was that capital goods and people could all travel seamlessly across borders and that they were all going to be able to end up where it was most productive for them to do so and that all boats would rise. And for a certain period of time, that was true. There was a lot of wealth created at a global level um, in the last half century but there were some downsides to globalization. It created a lot of in-country inequality in many countries, a lot of backlash, populist backlash on the part of voters who really felt that the global economy had become too disconnected from their own communities and from the well-being of their communities, their jobs. And so I think we're now at a pivot point for a lot of reasons, which I can get into. And I think that we're going to see more of a focus on local as well.
1: So, would you say like the war in Ukraine is is changing globalism or kind of hampering it, or if not, what events do you think are really changing the uh, you know the whole move from globalism maybe to more regional trading partners or even nationalism?
2: Yeah, well, certainly we're moving to more of a regional world that was happening even before the war in Ukraine or the pandemic. But since then, we've seen a real Feeding up of supply chain decoupling—you know—the idea that Germany, for example, was ever going to get the majority of its energy from Russia, you know, which is a country run by an autocrat who could change directions at any moment and has—it kind of seems like folly now. And similarly, the idea that we get 92% of all our high-end semiconductors from Taiwan, which is also a very politically contentious place—really, people are beginning to tune into these risks. And these are risks not only. Because of geopolitics, but also because of concentration. Um, the companies have gotten bigger and more powerful. They've also become more concentrated. There's a superstar effect in which a handful of companies in most critical sectors control the majority of, of trade, of commerce. And so people are really trying to think, gosh, is that a resilient system? It may be very efficient, but is it resilient? And so with the end of cheap energy coming from Russia, cheap labor coming from China, and China is now really becoming much more protectionist and wants to win its own supply chains. I think that there's going to be much more regionalization and more of a, a push for redundancy in supply chains, and also a push to make sure that local communities, particularly in richer countries, are not hollowed out because companies are safe moving labor and intellectual property to places where jobs, you know, you can pay less money or there's no privacy laws, you know, and they kind of go race to the bottom.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets a hundred thousand plus downloads a month, So, I mean, what do you see as as happening with globalism, let's say, in the short term over the next year or two? What do you think is going to change in the world economic picture?
2: Well, you know, I think we're just going to see a speeding up of all the things that we've already seen. You know, really, since the last 10 years or so, trade in traditional goods and services has been flattening um, because companies are looking and they're saying, you know, this sort of cheap labor in Asia thing is tapped out. Energy is more expensive. There's new technologies like additive manufacturing and enable us to closer to the home. And that's actually more convenient. And maybe it's better for the planet. And, you know, we can sort of do local for local production. That's just speeding up now. That's really starting to speed up. And, and there are certain rules and new regulations that are, that are putting a, you know, a, sort of a tailwind to that, I would say. Things like the chip stack in the U.S., which is the local production, semiconductors. Europeans have the stimulus, and I think things like more environmental cost. Selling companies really having to look at their supply chains and say, are they energy efficient? How much carbon are they um, are they emitting? And then as they do that, they're going to start thinking, well, you know what? Maybe we ought to start reshoring a bit more, moving to some jobs and some production places where it's either, you know, we're seeing higher environmental standards or better labor standards. That's very much a live discussion in trade debates. Right? And, you know, the IPEF trade negotiations which are going on between the U.S. and a number of Asian countries are really, really focused on can we lift environmental standards, can we lift labor standards in these places? And if we can't, well, we really can't find these deals because we can't have a race to the bottom, you know, yet again. And at this time in higher-end services and goods, like we did in the in the 90s and the, and the
1: 2000s so how do you think uh, like which sectors do you think are going to win let's say temporarily if a recession you know hits this coming year
2: mm-hmm. well for sure i think it's going to be mid-size industrials smaller mid-size industrials these are in the u.s in particular these are kind of the hidden gems i would say of our economy They're, they've been out of favor for a long time, tech was in favor. Now tech is correcting. In part because, you know, tech is the most global industry. It's very concentrated. And as things begin to regionalize and localize, tech companies are, are feeling that pinch more than others. On the other hand, industrials that are located in country, not just in the U.S., but in other places that are doing regionalization, localization like Germany and parts of Asia, I think that those are really going to be an uptick. And also, as you see climate change, technologies incentivize, you know, things like the Inflation Reduction Act, and the US, which is meant to encourage uh, investments into new production of of clean tech. That's going to favor industrial as well.
1: Um, Any major changes that you see coming because of your experience with journalism? And I'm sure because you talk to many different people in many different sectors all the time. Like, what do you feel like you're seeing that maybe um, is not being talked about or acknowledged in the news very much?
2: Well, you know, one thing, and it, it sort of ties into my book, but also goes beyond it. The work from home trend that we saw, and you know, I'm working from home. I don't know if you are, but many, many people that I'm dealing with on a daily basis are working from home now. That's great in a lot of ways. It's given us a lot of flexibility. But as um, CEO last year told me, you know, if you can do the job in Tahoe, you can do it in Bangalore. And so, I'm getting a little bit concerned that we may see higher-end white-collar job outsourcing of the time that we saw with blue-collar jobs in the 90s and 2000s. If that happens, I think that that is going to be a major political issue. Um, that's something I'm watching. I'm also looking very much at the rise of millennial voters. Younger voters are, are finally beginning to show up. We saw that in the midterms. They're not out in force as, mu- as much as they might be but they're starting to have an effect. I think that we're going to see more of a push for a social safety net, for for government interaction in the economy. And I think at some point, too, we're going to see a little bit of a square off between the millennials and the baby boomers for for their share of the pie. You know, we've got a bit of a shrinking pie right now, probably going to see some, some softening in the economy in the next year or two. And young people want, say, and get relief, but older people want to make sure that their entitlements don't get cut back. And I think at some point that's going to become a real political battle
1: in the U.S. Um, so, all right, I, I understand when you're talking about the work from home phenomena. I mean, a lot of sectors are able to do that, but there are sectors that are not. You know, manufacturing, yeah. etc. So, I guess the tech sectors and um, I mean, even service. I guess some will be able to move to you know. To work from home but some of it will have to be physical brick and mortar or in-person type activity so how do you think that that's going to be effective let's say manufacturing do you see that you know there's a big push to bring manufacturing back to the united states or is it are people really not awake yet and it's just like a very slow gradual type thing
2: well it already is coming back you, you saw this year in fact that jobs and manufacturing not only Went up to the pandemic, you know, pre-pandemic, piece, but they went beyond it. So we really are in a in a manufacturing business already. Manufacturing is changing. You know, it's going to be much more of a blend of old line factory jobs, services, R and D, tech. You know, the Internet of Things is bringing all the innovations that we've seen in smartphones, consumer space. That's all now coming to businesses. So. When I go to factories, um, yeah, I see people still doing old line factory jobs, but I see them also doing a lot of tech work, a lot of service work. And I think that there will be some more flexibility perhaps. Um, a lot of things can actually be done remotely even by by folks using computers in, in totally different spaces. So I think even in the manufacturing sector, you can see more flexibility. That said, I think that because of the the geopolitical issues and the sense that there's got to be a certain amount of domestic manufacturing and resiliency, I don't think that you're going to see an outsourcing of the jobs that have to do with making things in this country. I think that we've we've already passed the piece of that.
1: Hmm. Great. Um, So what do you think are going to be some of the the positive aspects of this deglobalization? And what do you think are going to be some of the negative ones? It sounds like things will be less just-in-time less efficient, but maybe cheaper because they don't have to travel as far? Or like, or do you think there's gonna be a fragmentation in the labor market? Like, like, what do you see is happening? So
2: I wouldn't say cheaper. In fact, you know, the, the sort of cheap for cheap state paradigm is going away, I think, because, you know, it is going to be somewhat inflationary in the short term, to have better paid labor and to, you know, actually think about things like carbon emissions, environmental standards. I mean, if you want a $5 t-shirt, sure, you can get child labor in Xinjiang, you know, and and you can get that $5 t-shirt. But if you want a product that's well made by people that make a living wage and, you know, and aren't destroying the environment, it is going to cost more. But I think that this plays into um, really a larger shift to a less disposable world. I mean, you're already seeing that even in the fashion sector, which is kind of shocking to me. You know, the, the it's, that's one of the sectors that's very polluting, very hard on the environment. But even in that sector, you're seeing a lot of companies start to think much more deeply about their environmental impact. And you're seeing shoppers um, that want to have companies work within the circular economy. They want to, you know, buy less, fewer things, but better things. And I think that that, that fast fashion paradigm is going away. So yes, inflation, but certainly more thought about sustainability. I think you're gonna see uh, higher end jobs, but but also maybe fewer jobs because as we replace a certain amount of human labor with technology, jobs will go up market, but there's also gonna be fewer of them. So I don't think you're gonna go back to say, you know, two thousand people working in a single factory It's gonna be maybe more like two hundred, you know, but those jobs are gonna be better. So so those are some things I think. In terms of information flows and data flows, I think that there's going to be higher levels of cross-border trade in data and digital services, but there may be a one-world, two-systems paradigm where China has its own systems, um, standards, technologies, uh, privacy paradigms, and the U.S. and other liberal democracies have their own. Now, where Europe ends up in this is still a bit of a question mark because they're kind of trying to hedge their bets right now between the U.S. and China.
1: Hmm. Uh, what are going to be some of the countervailing forces that are just kind of drag on everything in your estimation?
2: Well, I think that particularly if we see a slowdown and if we see inflation continue to be an issue, you're going to see a lot of people saying, well, we just have to think about consumer prices, the only method that matters. Uh, and there'll be a push to kind of go back to the old, you know, cheaper is better paradigm. I- I'm worried about that because I think Looking for just cheap, cheap, cheap everything doesn't favor US labor. It doesn't favor high quality. It favors fast, efficient, just in time, cheap. But as we've seen again, even before the pandemic, even before were in Ukraine, that comes in a lot of risk. You know, I always talk about the Rana Plaza factory collapse in 2011 in Bangladesh. But it was a perfect example of retail outsourcers not even knowing where their supply chain was it Turns out that big brands are sourcing to um, a factory in Bangladesh that had these terrible standards and ends up ended up with a fire, it collapsed, it killed 1,100 people. You know, I could give you 12 different stories of that of that kind. Um, I also hear from a lot of businesses that, frankly, highly globalized just-in-time supply chains are very prone to disruption because they're very concentrated. So, with more climate disruption, more geopolitical disruption. I just think that you're going to see a whole different way of doing things in business. And maybe even going back to vertical integration, the kind of River Rouge model, you know, that um, Detroit used to have where you had a car factory that owned the raw materials and the widgets and kind of, you know, did everything in a hub that it could control. So you could see more of that.
1: Well, since you've been a journalist for so long, you know, you've been through various recessions and, you know, more good times than bad, I guess, but, uh, you know, still some what's different this time, or is it just, Hey, we're cycling again, as we always have. Yeah, I know it's like a, a open-ended question, but do you see that, you know, the economic conditions are very different from what we've ever seen before, or this is not, par, mm-hmm. this is not new. It's just par for the course as, as things slow down. Or do you think? Like we're in a really unique set of circumstances right now, economically.
2: Oh, I think it's pretty unique. I mean, I I think this is sort of a once in a 70-year paradigm shift. If you think about the neoliberal ethos, you know, it was really born in the 1930s in Europe um, between the two great wars. And you had a lot of political economists, thinkers that were saying, okay, how can we make sure companies don't get a war together again? And the way that they came up with was to connect global capital uh, and business across borders. And that was great. And it worked for a certain period of time. But after we got to a certain place, in particular with trade and the global trade system, allowing countries with very, very different political philosophies to do trade with one another in ways that you just didn't have an even playing field. So when you start getting a lot of state-run capitalist societies, countries with you know autocratic governments or, or single government systems trying to trade with free market countries, it just it didn't work. It was it was a wasn't a, a flat even playing field, and so we also got, I would say, a lot of financially driven growth, you know, um, growth that was based much more on asset prices going up than it was on, on income going up. And I think this just reached the end of that, you know, I mean, in a country like the US, where you've got an economy that that's based 70% on continued spending, if people don't have more money in their paycheck, you know, then the math kind of stops working. And that's really where we really are right now. Um, and you're seeing the end of Cheap money with quantitative easing, the end of cheap labor with countries regionalizing, localizing, uh, and the end of cheap energy. So I, I just think we really are at a very different place going forward, economically.
1: So the average uh, consumer, let's say in the U.S., what kind of adjustments are they going to have to go through in terms of their lifestyle, lifestyle, and spending? And what's this going to? I don't know. What's this going to do to them and to families in the U.S. and households?
2: Well, I'm worried about working people because, of course, inflation, in fact, all negative economic trends always hit them harder. But I think that it's important that we not go back to a just jack up the share prices, push down the consumer prices as much as possible, because the problem is that doesn't create good jobs. You know, it might be cheap televisions at Walmart, but it doesn't make education or health care or housing more affordable for, for average people. And that's really where we need to go. I personally think that the Biden administration is doing a great job addressing some of these issues, but it's a slow cost. You know, when we when we have the Reagan Thatcher revolution, things didn't change overnight. You know, they changed over a period of time. And I think that's where we are now. One thing I would very much like to see is a conversation about education. I think that we have way too much student debt. We have a lot of people going to four-year colleges that don't Really need that education could could be doing uh, online learning combined with vocational um, skill training and you know um, even uh, high schools that offer say two years of community college as part of the, the high school degree. I just think that there could be a lot more efficient ways of helping people to get a leg up without having to go into debt. Hmm.
1: Okay, um, so what's uh, the goal your, with your book? What is your goal? Is it to kind of put all your thoughts of what's happening now and to give people a picture of what to expect or, you know, what sectors might do well going forward or, like, what was your intent in writing? What do you hope people get out of it that read it?
2: Well, you know, I I always hope when people read my book that they come away with a, a new, fresh worldview. I think that there was a kind of a conventional reason, um, it was expressed actually in Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, that unfettered globalization is the future. There's nothing we could do about it. But this, is, this is where, you know, the world was headed, end of history, all of that. And I don't think that's the case. I think we are moving towards a world in which you're going to have to have some remooring of wealth in place, some sense that um, the economy is working for communities, for labor, not just for technocrats you know, at a global level or multinational companies. And so I hope when people read that, they, they come away with some sense that that's happening and also some hope and some ideas about how how it will happen.
1: Mm. Okay. Well, very good, Rana. What's the best way for, well, to get the book? Uh, is it on Amazon and wherever books are sold? Is, is it out and available right now?
2: Yeah, it's, it's okay. out and available. It's on Amazon. Um, if you go to my website, R A N A F O R O O A K R dot com, see all the many ways that you can purchase the book. And you'll also be able to read a few snippets from it and see some
1: endorsements.
2: So Hope hope everybody um, has a look, and thanks for the time uh, talking about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, Rhonda, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate
0: it.
2: Okay, thanks enough.
0: Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.